red lights on. I'm there. It comes to a lot of us, I should say. I don't, shouldn't say it comes to us all. Glasses. Notice, glasses, see, glasses. The next stage, I believe, is um, the vocal, was it? Bifocals. Bifocals. So don't mention bifocals. I don't want to know about bifocals. <laughs> Actually, as some of you know, I've probably needed glasses for years, just to, just refused to wear them. Just, just starting now. And I'm only using them just so I can see you, see your faces. I don't need them otherwise. I mean, for reading, I'm fine. But um, yeah, I've got to make sure you're smiling all the time. <laughs> right, this morning, big subject. We're talking about the New and the Old Testament. So like Neil's the new, I'm the old, we're dealing with the whole subject, the whole Bible. Does that, does that sound a bit much for one, one morning? Do you think I can get that in? Especially as I've only got half the morning and Sam's going to do the other half. I'm doing the old, Sam's doing the new. We're talking about worship. Worship from the Old and the New Testament. What it looks like. Now, I'm a bit of... Um, I'm not as theologically trained as, say, some of you. And some of you preachers like Paul and Sam who come out here and say great things. I'm a bit like a film director. I've come out here this morning, I've taken a thousand-page book, and I've taken out of that thousand-page book the hundred pages that I want, and then I'm going to turn them into 350 pages. So there's some things in there that maybe aren't right, there's some things in there that are. I'll be told afterwards by people, they'll come and tell me which theological bits I've got wrong, and that I've got a, next week, when I come and preach next week, they'll be like you get in newspapers, you get that bit where they say, we got this wrong last week, we've got to put this in a little, what, what's that, what are those called when you get those? But the what? Corrections. corrections, I suppose so, yeah. So next week, I'll come with the corrections, all right? <laughs> okay. Now, I know some of you like sermons to be um, all in sections, you know, all nicely, all nicely laid out. Now, I don't know whether this is actually going to be like that. I don't know whether it's going to be too structured. So what I will do is I will throw out numbers every now and then, and you can stick a title by it, all right? So if you hear me shout two, that's where you've got to put a title in for your next section, okay? <laughs> right. I started by looking at the Old Testament. I was going to look at how they came, what it was like when they went into the tabernacle, when they went into the, the, um, the temple to worship. But actually, I came to think the more important thing was to look at the people and, the, and how, they, how they felt, what they were like, rather than what the temple was like, rather than what it was like in, in the temple when they went in there, the, what worship they did. Look at the people and what their heart was like and why they were going and why they were doing it. It seemed more important. And actually, when you look at the scriptures, there isn't a lot about what they did once they went into the temple. We see some things about how they sang, the amount of singers, the amount of noise, the amount of trumpeters, and, and things that they had to do, the commandments that they were given that told them what they had to do. But there isn't a lot about what they actually did once they were in there. There's more about what God expected of his people and what his people gave to God. So I want to read scripture. It's Isaiah 43, 20 to 21. The wild animals honour me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. They were a chosen people. They knew that they were chosen by God. And they were chosen to proclaim his praise. That's why they were chosen, that they might go out and proclaim who God was. And they might praise him. That was what they were called for. They were called that they would praise God and they would proclaim his holy name. Now God wanted them to be a pure people. When they come before him, they wanted to be a, they wanted, he wanted them to be pure. So what he did was he gave them a whole host of laws that they were to follow. 
and they lived. I'm taking the ideal here. Let's face it, when you look at Israel, when you look at the people of Israel, there's times when this fell away. There's times when they did the wrong thing, when they sinned, when they, when they built their graven images and all the other things. But this is the ideal, what God wanted for them, and at times what they were able to achieve in going, coming before God. God gave them all these laws that they, would, they could follow. They couldn't come before God under their own terms. They had to come to God under his terms. So he gave them these laws that they would follow. Now these laws covered every aspect of their life. They covered their home life, their eating, their relationships, their families, their work life, and their lives when they went to the temple to worship. It covered how they should worship. All, all aspects of their lives were covered. The law provided a way of maintaining, and when needed, restoring the fellowship of God. So the law was there that they could fellowship with God. The law was there so that they could come before God and worship him. Their lives were committed to worship. Every aspect of their lives was to do with worship. They knew that God had given them commands to live every piece of their lives. And that's how they had to live, so that on the Sabbath they could come and worship God. The first four commandments were about worship. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not have any gods before me. Thou shalt not make for yourself any carved images. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So right at the beginning of these laws that God was giving for his people, there were the laws said about worship, but how they would come before him. And they were a committed people. They were committed to following God and following his work and, and worshipping him. They knew they'd been called and they knew the reason they'd been called. Now also, to access God, they needed to sacrifice. They needed to be a sacrifice as well. They, they couldn't just come in. They needed to be a sacrifice which was part of the worship, which was part of coming into the temple, part of coming into the tabernacle and seeing God. So it wasn't just that they followed the laws to be pure. God wanted them to sacrifice if you like, that last bit of purity to come into that place where God was, to come, to come before God. And they're still not coming under their own terms. They're still coming under God's terms. And even then, they couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. Even though they went through all that, it was still only the priest that could go through the curtain and actually meet with God. That doesn't mean they didn't feel the presence of God from time to time. We can read in Exodus 40, 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Would you have liked to have been there? Wouldn't that have been great? Wouldn't that be fantastic when the glory of the Lord just fell upon the meeting? And there's another, there's another um, place where, that, where we see that happens as well, when they're, when they're in the temple, the dedication of the temple. The, 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 there was this cloud of the Lord just fell upon the meeting and everything went silent because God just presenced himself in that place. And also in Leviticus 26.12, and I walk along with you and be, sorry, let me turn that again. And I will walk along with you and be your God and you shall be my people. So they knew God was in their presence. Wherever they went, God had promised to walk with them and to be with them. Okay. How did they come? When they went to the Sabbath, what were their hearts? Where were they? What were they feeling? How were they seeing God? They had a fear for God. They reverenced him. 
They knew, they'd seen what had happened. They'd heard stories of what God had done when the Egyptians were just washed away. They had that fear, that understanding of how great God was. Sam said about it the other day when I was talking to him about this. And he, he said, in the, I don't know if you've seen the film Narnia. Where, you're going to use that bit. I'm, I'm seeing some of Sam's. <laughs> you shouldn't be using my bit. This is what I'm talking about. <laughs> you shouldn't tell me things, see? I see keep quiet. When, um, when, the, when the children go in to see the beaver and they're talking, and they're talking about Aslan the lion and, the, um, and one of the girls says, is he dangerous? And the beaver says, of course he's dangerous, but he's good. And the people knew that God was dangerous. They'd seen some of his acts, some of the things he'd done, but he was a good God. They knew he loved them. They knew the fear of God. When they entered that place, they were fearful of a good and mighty God. And they didn't take it lightly to go into his presence. They, didn't, they weren't glib about where they were, what was going on. This, I believe, if I've got it correctly, came from... I don't know how many of you saw the Sherlock Holmes over Christmas, the special. And he came out with... The, I, think, I think this was a saying. Yeah, some people got it, some people didn't. I think this was a saying he came out with. Was, with. Fear is a sensible emotion in the face of danger. And it's true, when we come before God, we should fear him because we know there's danger, but we're coming before a good and a mighty God. And the people of Israel knew that. When they went into the temple and the tabernacle, they knew where they were going, and they knew what situation they were putting themselves in. They had awe. They held awe, God, in great esteem. They were in wonder of, his, of what he'd done. Mike mentioned last week about seeing the stars. I don't know if you've ever been outside at night when there hasn't been light pollution, when you've been out in the country and there's no light around, you look up in the stars, you see there's so many billions of bright shining stars. And they would have seen that. They would have looked around and seen all the wonderful things God had done. They would have seen the stars at night, the earth that he created, all the things around. And they would have worshipped him for that. They would have held him as that awesome God that had done all, that, all those wonderful things in creation. They knew who their God was. They held him up as king. They knew what majesty was. You can see through the scriptures, kings going and coming, and you've got good ones, bad ones. But they knew what it was to see a king upon the throne. You've seen those films where they, where they show the whole of Egypt, or, or something like that, and, and they're all, all gathered, and there's the king walks down the middle aisle and goes, and goes and sits on the throne. And they, So they knew what it was to worship a king. They knew what it was to have a king amongst them. And they knew that their king, David and King Solomon especially, bowed down to God. Someone greater than the king. So they knew God as majestic, as up there, as, as great and wonderful. They knew about thanksgiving. They were thankful to God. When they came, they came with thanksgiving. You've only got to read the Psalms and see how David wrote the Psalms or whoever wrote the different bits of the Psalms. They were thankful what God had done, what God had brought them out of, that he'd saved them from the Egyptians. There's all these stories that go on through, through the Bible. They thanked God for all those wonderful things that he'd done. They came with thanksgiving on their heart that they might thank him and praise him. And they loved him. They came with love. They knew that God loved them. They'd seen the things that he'd done. And they knew that they'd loved him as well. There was that two-way thing. God loved them and they loved God for all the wonderful things that he'd done. They had that love in their heart. It was a heart relationship that they had with God because they knew of the wonderful things he'd done. And they were... Oh, no, what's that? Oh, yep. And they had a heart with God. Sorry. 
missing my um, notes there. And there was the mystery, the mystery of who God was, the mystery of who God was to them. For, for all of them, except for the priest and high priest, there was that curtain they couldn't go through. There was that mystery be- behind the curtain of who God was and the mystery of the th- how he did, how he was so great. Don't, don't feel there's a mystery to God. There's still a mystery to what, who he is. And they had that mystery. They knew that sense of we're going into the tabernacle, yet there's something, there's something beyond that. There's something they beyond, lays beyond that that they didn't know about. And for them, hearing the scriptures, there was a mystery to come. There was something beyond. There was God's plan. There was God's plan that they didn't know what it was, but they were being told there was something else to come. There was something beyond where they were. There was the mystery of what God's plan was. Okay, just want to summarise. They were chosen people. They knew that they were chosen They knew that they were chosen of God. They were chosen to proclaim and praise God. They were chosen to proclaim his name, to tell the nations around of how great he was, how wonderful, how wonderful he was. They were under law, that they they should be pure. All these laws that covered all the different aspects of their lives were there that they might be pure for God. They needed the sacrifice to access God. To even come into the place where they went to in the tabernacle, they needed the sacrifice to come before God. They had a true sense of God's greatness. They had seen what he had done. They had seen his power. They had seen his greatness. They had a true sense of who he was. Worship touched every part of their lives. <coughs> because of the law, because of all the different things they had to do to come to that place of worshipping God. The, the, their, their worship touched everything they did their working lives every life, every part and if you forget anything else I've said this morning the one big thing was they had a heart relationship with God they knew in their heart who he was they knew that he loved them they knew the love of God and in turn they loved him they had that relationship with him they knew that's what they were being called for they had been called to be God's worshipping people. But still there was a distance. Still there was the veil they couldn't go beyond. There was a plan to come that they didn't know about. I want to read you one last, one last psalm that I think actually sums up God's people. Give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name. Make known among the nations what he has done. Sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of his wonderful acts. Glorify in his holy name. Let's, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Remember the wonders he has done. His miracles and his, judge, and his judgments. He, and the judgments he pronounced. You his servants. The descendants of Abraham. His chosen ones. The children of Jacob. He is the Lord, our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Reverse technology. Yeah, reverse technology, yes. Yeah. <laughs> that bit there. Yeah. That's fine.
Brilliant. Thank you, Nigel. Uh, if you can turn to Mark chapter 15, uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, just while you're finding your way there, uh, I just want to say that when you're preaching in a pair, or if you're preaching in a team, it adds different challenges in terms of communication uh, about what your plans are and, and what your, your intentions are. And um, in the week, Nigel and I, we'd, we'd met up and we went over what we felt God was speaking to each of us. So when I was preparing what I had, I had an idea, I had some notes of what Nigel had told me about where he was going. So for the last 15 minutes, I've listened to every single word that has come out of his mouth. And uh, as Lamb was standing, I think we're okay. We've done well. Uh, so I'm just going to carry on with what I had. I think next time I'm going to go first. <laughs> so, uh, I've made that note, go first next time. Um, but we're okay. So we've just entered into a new year. It's 2016, or to give it its proper name, it's 2016 AD. AD standing for Anno Domini, which is Latin for in the year of our Lord. So it's 2016 years uh, since the life and death of Jesus. And then before AD, we had BC, a period of time that was before Christ, that was leading up to, to him coming. That's God dwelling among people. And that's the time that Nigel was talking about, this Old Testament, this time before Christ had appeared, before Christ had come. And the people at that time, they lived under what we called the Old Covenant, that Nigel said, this promise that God had made that he would have a people for himself. They would be his people, they would be their God, but they um, had to obey the, the laws and the commandments that he had set for them, the way that they should live, the expectations that he had for his people. So we've got the Old Testament, that period of time before Christ, this expectation of the one who was to come, and then Jesus comes. And then we see the New Testament, this new covenant, this new promise that has been established with people. And that's the period of time that we're living in now. You see, the birth, life, ministry, death and resurrection of Christ, they are the turning points in world history. They are the absolute turning points in world history. He is the link between the old and the new. As I said, everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Old Covenant pointed towards Jesus coming. And then in the New Covenant, in this New Testament, everything flows from him and comes from him. So, if I've got this right, Nigel's focus in the time that he spent with us this morning is how the worship of the people, the worship of God's people, flowed out, of, flowed out from the relationship that they had with him. How they viewed him and how they saw him, understanding this awe and reverence and majesty of God. This fear of God that they had. And not only that, uh, they had the, um, the sacrificial system in place as well. Offerings of animals, blood sacrifices, blood offerings were made in order to cover uh, where they'd fallen short of God's expectations for the offences that they'd made against God. But there were other offerings as well in terms of thank offerings, thanking God for his provision and the things that he had done. But as Nigel said, while they were God's people and they knew God, for themselves, there was still a sort of a sense of distance, a sense of mystery, particularly with the way that the sacrificial system worked. There was one high priest who represented the whole nation. And while they knew they were God's people and they could come and they could worship, there was this, still this distance that was there. They couldn't enter fully in, just one man, one time of the year. My aim this morning and what time we have left is to explore what the New Testament reveals about who can access God in terms of who can have a relationship with him, and then how that's to be expressed, how that's to be lived out, what worship would look like in light of that. So let's pick up in Mark 15, and at this point Jesus has come, God has dwelt 
amongst men and women and children. And he made claims that he was the son of God. And this got a lot of people's backs up, uh, really upset a lot of people. They accused him of being a blasphemer. Uh, and they wanted to, to have him killed. They wanted to have him done away with. So they, uh, uh, they kind of pleaded and pleaded that they would be able to have Jesus killed. And it was granted to them. Uh, and he was sentenced to death with crucifixion. And at this point where we're going to pick up, Jesus has been nailed to the cross and he's been left to die. So we'll pick up from verse 33, which says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Now in Jerusalem, in the city where Jesus was, he was crucified just outside the city, but in Jerusalem there was a temple. This was the place where the Jewish people went to worship. This was the place where they went to do their sacrifices. And the way the temple was laid out was it had kind of different layers. And the further in towards the center of the temple you got, it got more restricted about who was allowed to go in there. So you had the outer courtyards. Anyone could go in there, what they called the Gentile courtyards. So that was open to Jewish and non-Jewish alike. And then you go in a layer and you had the women's courtyard. You go in another layer and you have the inner courts. And within the inner courts, there were courtyards where the sacrifices were made, where the animals were sacrificed in that place. You go further in further still and you have the holy place. And this was only accessible by the priests, by the Jewish priests. And then inside the holy place was the holy of holies. was a part of the temple that was separated from the rest by a huge curtain. This curtain was 60 foot high and 30 foot wide. It was vast. It was huge. And it was in the Holy of Holies behind this curtain where one high priest would go once a year on the Day of Atonement with the sacrifice to present a sacrifice on behalf of the people. This one priest was the representative for the whole of the Jewish nation. <coughs> one high priest once a year to stand before God as a representative of the people. And this curtain that separated off the Holy, Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, this is the curtain that was torn in two from top to bottom. In the moment that Jesus died, that curtain split from top to bottom. Imagine 60 foot high, 30 foot wide, it just split right down the middle, top to bottom. This is hugely significant. You see, the curtain that was a barrier between God and us, that curtain was torn in two because Jesus is the ultimate and the final sacrifice. He was perfect and blameless. He lived a life that totally fulfilled the requirements of the old covenant, the laws and the commands. He carried them out faultlessly with perfection. And his death has totally fulfilled the old covenant requirements. He has appeared once and for all to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's what he came to do. And as the great high priest, he has entered into the holy place on our behalf to purify us. And that means that we now have access to the Father. We can now enter into the most holy of places in a way that wasn't available before. Jesus' sacrifice has made 
that way open. Andrew Wilson, who some of you may know of, he's an elder uh, in a church in Eastbourne. He likes to tweet quite a bit. I follow him on Twitter. And the other day he said that Spurgeon wrote that the the temple curtain was torn from top to bottom so big sinners could fit through. From top to bottom so big sinners could fit through. It doesn't matter what you've done, what your background is, or where you've come from. It's not about what your nationality is. It's not about what your upbringing is. It's not about what your past experience is. You see, Jesus has made a way. Through turning from your sin, through turning from your old way of living, and believing in him that his sacrifice covers you. God has torn down the barrier between himself and us through the work of Jesus. That's what that tearing of the curtain represents. That barrier is now gone. We can have access to God in a way that wasn't available to the people in the Old Covenant. Where that distance was. We can enter fully in in a way that they couldn't. Which means that we can enjoy the relationship with the Father that Jesus enjoys. Have you ever considered that? The way that Jesus relates to his Father. The enjoyment that he has. The access that he has. Jesus has handed it to us and said, here you go, this is for you as well. I want you to enjoy the Father in the same way that I enjoy the Father. No set times, no set places, no festivals, no rituals, just to be able to enter in. Full acceptance and full relationship. So with this in mind, how then should we respond? What is an appropriate response on our behalf as people who now have access to the Father? Hebrews 10 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through the flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So because Jesus has made a way, we can enter in to that holy place with full assurance, full confidence that we are now welcomed by the Creator God. Knowing that we're clean. Knowing that we've been made pure through Jesus' sacrifice, and we can come and we can stir one another up to love and to good works, to encourage one another and build one another up, to meet together, to worship and to praise. Then in Romans 12, Romans 12 appeals to us that we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices. What that means is we're to give everything to God because of his saving grace, to give everything of ourselves to him. And it goes on to say that this is our spiritual act of worship. That is what God is looking for. N.T. Wright, he describes the act of worship as the human activity of giving God the glory, of praising the Creator for His goodness, His power, His judgments and His mercy, both past, present and future. That's what worship is. It's the activity of giving God the glory and praising Him for everything He is, for everything that He's done and for everything that He's going to do, past, present and future that's what Jesus has made available to us and that is the response that we should have to offer everything we have as living sacrifices as our act of worship 
but to stir one another up to love and good works and to encourage one another and to praise and worship him. Another significant change between the Old and New Testaments is, is the giving of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Spirit, he came to certain people for certain times, situations or tasks. And then the prophet Joel, one of the Old Testament prophets, he spoke about a time though when the Spirit would be poured out on all flesh, young and old, men and women, not just for certain times, not just for certain people or certain occasions, but the Spirit would be poured out on all people. That's what the people of the Old Testament were living with, but it was an expectation of something that was to come, not something that they were actually living in the midst of at that point. So after Jesus was crucified, after he died and the curtain temple was torn in two, he was buried in a tomb and then three days later he rose from the dead. He was resurrected. The Holy Spirit brought him back to life. And after Jesus' resurrection and just before he returns to be with his father, he promises his followers the Holy Spirit, that one would come after him. He says in Acts 1 verse 8, this is Jesus speaking to his followers, he says that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Holy Spirit would come in power and to equip Jesus' followers. And then in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes and everything changes from that point. N.T. Wright, who I mentioned a moment ago, he says that the church from Acts 2 onwards is the spirit-led church with worship as an integral part of its proper life. The Holy Spirit comes, the church becomes a spirit-led church where worship is an integral part of their proper life. The Holy Spirit, he gives life. He gives power for service. He gives spiritual gifts. He empowers prayer, purifies, reveals guides and directs. He gives evidence of God's presence. He gives assurance that we are children of God. He unifies. But we also have a response to make to him in terms of our obedience. To his leading, to his guidance. If he's given us gifts, then we have to be obedient in using them. You see, the people Nigel was speaking about, they were living with an expectation of Joel's prophecy that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh. It was an expectation. It hadn't yet happened but they were living in hope of this time that was to come. Guess what? We're living in those days that Joel prophesied. This is no light thing. This is something we need to really understand and grab hold of. We are living in those days that the people of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, were longing for and waiting for an expectation. You and I, we are living in those days where the Holy Spirit has been poured out and is available to us. He leads us and he guides us. He helps us in our worship and in our praise, in our understanding. He teaches, he reveals, he unifies. What a privileged people we are to be living this. I tell you what, I feel so privileged to be living this side of Jesus. That I have that access to the Father in a way that people didn't have before. That I have the Holy Spirit living in me and equipping me and preparing me for the works that God has in store for me. We're to be a spirit-led church with worship as an integral part of our proper life, being led by the Spirit in the way that we praise and worship our Creator God and our Father God. Nigel mentioned earlier about the fear of God and the majesty of God. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, uh, and me and Steph have been having quite a few conversations about it. It seems to be coming up in the stuff that I'm reading in the Scriptures as well. 
I just want to finish this time we have this morning just by sharing some thoughts on that. Uh, just some of, the, some of the things that God's been putting in my mind. See, in Hebrews 12, verse 28, it says that we're to be grateful for receiving a kingdom that, can, that cannot be shaken. We've received a kingdom through the access that Jesus has won for us and has offered to us. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. So we come and we offer God acceptable worship. And it says this in Hebrews. Come, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For God is a consuming fire. Hebrews, this is a New Testament book. This is the time that we're living in, in the New Covenant. We come with reverence and awe because our God is a consuming fire. This isn't just an Old Testament attitude. It's not just an Old Testament truth that God is to be feared and revered and held in high esteem. This is for us today. And the question that I felt God put on my heart for me and the question I want to ask us this morning is when you come to worship, do you worship with reverence and awe? And when we're talking about reverence and awe, we mean great respect that can be mixed with fear or wonder. Because I feel that we need to be on our guard, and I'm speaking as much to me as I am to anyone here this morning. I feel we need to be on our guard against becoming over-familiar with God and Jesus' sacrifice in as much as it could lead us to lose our reverence and to lose our awe. We can, we can become over-familiar, and it's just the way things are. And we have to be on our guard against that. Yes, God loves us. We can know him as our Father. He is for us. We have access to him through Jesus. We can come to him just as we are. And thank God for all of those truths. But he is mighty, awesome, majestic and just. Fearing God means to respect him and to hold him in the right esteem. But it also means understanding how much he hates sin. And understanding the judgment of sin. And what the price is for that. It's what it is to fear God. I'm going to do my Aslan moment anyway, Nigel. <laughs> Steph, uh, me and Steph, we, we took Eva to Wingham Wildlife Park for her birthday. And if you've been to, to Wingham Wildlife Park, uh, it, it feels like you can get a lot closer to the animals than you can in most other zoos. There's not much distance between you and the enclosures that they have. And we, we'd wandered around, and it was towards the end of the day, we got round to where the lions were. And they are that close to you. You kind of start looking to make sure everything's right in the enclosure, that there's no gaps. Kind of planning escape routes for if anything were to go wrong. And the, you just get so close to them and you just see the size of these lions. And they are powerful. There's something very humbling of being, about being that close to an animal that you know is potentially very dangerous. You're not safe. Uh, if something were to go wrong, it would not be a safe place to be. And one of the lions, he, he went into like the indoor part of the, of the enclosure uh, and he'd been roaring quite a bit as well, hadn't he? So he had this noise of this roaring going around and he went to the inside part of the enclosure. And there's a pane of glass, a window, where you can, so you can see what they're up to even when they're on the inside bit. And Steph, with, with Eva in the buggy, pushed right up and pretty much had your nose near enough on the glass having a look in and it was dark inside so you couldn't really see what was going on. And all of a sudden, this lion stepped forward, kind of out of the darkness, right up into Steph's face. So they were pretty much, if that glass wasn't there, they would have been like nose for nose. And it just, like it appeared out of nowhere. To the extent that Steph physically took steps back, and I laughed, and, <laughs> and I asked if she was okay, and she said, she said, yeah, I'm absolutely fine. And she said, I think I just had an Aslan moment in that moment. And so, like Nigel said, Aslan is... Um, 
a character in the Narnia books, and he's a rep- he represents Jesus. Okay, so he's there to represent Jesus. And just, Nigel said this, but I just want to say this again, just to really emphasize the truth of what he was saying. And I want you to, to listen to this and to really think about this, because this is true about the Jesus that we have worshipped already this morning, about the Jesus that we're in a moment we're about to come back and worship. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, one of the girls, Susan, uh, she's having a conversation uh, with Mr. Beaver, as, as you do, and she, she finds out that she's about to meet Aslan. And she's, oh, is Aslan a man? What's he, what's he like? And Mr. Beaver says this, he says, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He is the king, I tell you. Can we have the band up? We're going to come and we're going to come and worship. Our Father God, we're going to come and worship Jesus, the Son of God. We're going to come in the power of the Holy Spirit to do that because he is the one who equips us. He is the one who gives us gifts. He is the one who reveals more of who Jesus is to us. And we come as people who are living in the new covenant, under the new promise. People who have access to to God in a way that wasn't available before through the sacrifice of Jesus. And we come as those who the Holy Spirit has been poured out on, which means we have gifts that he's given to us. So be prepared to use those as we come to worship as well. But let us get our eyes fixed on God and let us get our hearts and our minds in the right place to realise this is no light thing we come to do. Is Jesus safe? No. He's not safe. But he is good because he's the king. Shall we stand?